0: Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode How Jesus Became the Savior. This is a question that I have contemplated for a number of years now, especially when Easter time rolls around. I am recording this episode on the morning of Saturday, April 16th, 2022. Last night was Good Friday. It was also the full moon, which means that on Good Friday, when the Christian world is celebrating the Last Supper of Jesus prior to his crucifixion, the Jewish world is on the same evening commencing their celebration of the Passover and eating the Passover meal just as Jesus ate the Passover meal with his apostles in the upper room at least as it's set forth in the Synoptic Gospels. Now this does not happen every year. Easter has been determined long long ago I believe under Athanasius to be the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. The Passover on the other hand commences on the first full moon after the equinox. And as the stars and moon and sun lined up on this particular Easter season, the full moon before Easter was on Friday, April 15th, thus making Passover in the Jewish world and Good Friday in the Christian world Fall on the same day. For whatever reason, every year when this time rolls around, I find myself deeply moved by the story of Good Friday. I sense in some small degree the despair and anguish and confusion experienced by the followers of Jesus when he died upon the cross. And that confusion extended from Friday night through Saturday through Saturday night and until the following day when his disciples were. Overjoyed to find out that Jesus was no longer dead but had been resurrected. Good Friday is so important to me that actually, last night on Good Friday, I went to a Good Friday service at a local church. It was not the LDS church, the Mormons are not known for doing Good Friday. It was at another church where I was invited by my barber, who is a member of the Christ the King congregation. They were having a good Friday service. It was not indoors, it was outdoors in the parking lot. They had fire pits set up and people in lawn chairs around the fires, singing songs and listening to a sermon by their pastor. I listened to the sermon. I certainly found it more energetic and more interesting than most talks we hear in the LDS church. But on the other hand, I was somewhat surprised to find out that anti-Semitism is still alive and well among America's Christians. That is a story that I will tell Another day. It is during this in between time of darkness between the crucifixion and the resurrection that I record this podcast, and it is that despair and darkness experienced by the disciples which I believe led to. Jesus becoming the Savior. As most of you probably know, I have done a great deal of studies in the Old Testament, a great deal of studies in the New Testament, not just reading them both several times, but going deep and being guided in my studies by world-renowned experts. And no, they didn't come and teach me personally. I'm talking about the books I've read, the lectures I have attended. But as I have studied the Bible and as I have contemplated and pondered the story of Jesus Christ, one piece of the puzzle after another has seemed to fall into place for me. That's the puzzle of how it was that Jesus became the Savior and the subject that I'm going to be addressing this evening. First off, I have to tell you that there are a number of ways that scholars and experts and lay people alike understand Jesus. It appears that the authors of the four gospels understood Jesus in different ways as well. So this is certainly nothing new. There are some scholars who have viewed Jesus as a zealot, Some who have viewed him as a magician, some as an apocalyptic preacher, some as a great teacher, some as a prophet of God, and yes, some as the Son of God and the Savior of the world, and some even as God Almighty himself. But one thing that the Gospels are clear on is that Jesus is a twofold force. The first part is that he ministered to the marginalized in his society. And usually that's the part of Jesus and his ministry that gets all the focus in church. I remember once being in a sacrament meeting and the speaker was talking about Jesus and all the wonderful things he did and all the people that he helped, which is all to the good and not a bad thing to focus on or to talk about in sacrament meeting. But at one point this talk was getting so saccharine in its depiction of Jesus that I had to lean over to the person next to me and whisper, well, you don't get crucified without stepping on somebody's toes because that's the other part of Jesus's ministry, was calling out the religious leaders of his day for their hypocrisy and for their marginalizing the people that Jesus himself was ministering to. And not only that, and this is important, the religious leaders of Jesus's day were his religious leaders. He was standing up to the leaders of his own church, the leaders of his own synagogue, the leaders of his own religion. And what made Jesus angrier than anything else was when his religious leaders marginalized the poor, but not only marginalized them, marginalized them in the name of their religion. In other words, it became a sign of how righteous you were and how close to God you were That you would marginalize the people that God wanted to be marginalized in the name of God. That's how it was a symbol of righteousness. You like the people that God likes and you don't like the people that God doesn't like. And unfortunately, we are seeing many of the same symptoms among the leaders of the LDS church. Just a couple of weeks ago, in general conference, President Oaks gave a talk where he started out by proclaiming his love for all of God's children, assuring us that God does love all of his children equally and completely and perfectly, and yet then immediately segueing into a part of his talk discussing the marginalized in the LDS community, and why it was that God insisted that they should be marginalized. In other words, President Oaks was displaying his righteousness by marginalizing the people that God wants marginalized and enjoining that same kind of marginalization upon the members of his audience. All members of the church should marginalize the people that God wants marginalized. That's how you show that you're a true follower of Jesus Christ, because that's what Jesus would do, right? Play the tape. Fundamental to us is God's revelation that exaltation can only be attained through faithfulness to the covenants of an eternal marriage between a man and a woman. That divine doctrine is why we teach that gender is an essential characteristic of individual premortal, mortal, and eternal identity and purpose. That is also why the Lord has required His restored Church To oppose social and legal pressures, to retreat from his doctrine of marriage between a man and a woman, to oppose changes that homogenize the differences between men and women, or to confuse or alter gender. Now, if Jesus were a member of the LDS Church today, and if Jesus heard this talk by President Oaks, I don't know exactly What he would be doing about it. I imagine that if it's the same Jesus I read about in the New Testament, he would be voicing his opposition to these principles of marginalization espoused by President Oaks in the name of God. And maybe, just maybe, he'd make a podcast about it. But on to the main subject of tonight's discussion. How Jesus became the Savior. In order to understand this, we first have to set the backdrop. And the backdrop for Jesus' life and ministry is primarily found in the Old Testament. Now, it's often been said that you can't understand the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. And I think there's a lot of truth to that saying. The main theme of the Old Testament that concerns us here is the figure and the expectation of the Messiah. First, we need to understand that the Messiah figure in the Old Testament was a political leader and a military leader who would throw off the yoke of oppression that the Jews were under, and believe me, throughout their history, they've been under the oppression and the thumb of empire after empire and kingdom after kingdom. Not always, but often enough for them to want a Messiah figure to rescue them from this kind of oppression. So the Messiah would come and destroy the enemies of the Jews and establish the independent kingdom of Israel and sit on the throne forever. That is what the Messiah was going to do. Now the expectation of a Messiah among the Jewish people came about because of a certain prophecy about King David. It was said and recorded in the Old Testament as the words of God and the prophecy of God that David and his descendants would rule and reign over Israel forever. This is so important to our discussion tonight that I'm going to take a few minutes here to cement this idea and read a few passages from the Old Testament that talk about this very thing. First is Jeremiah chapter 33 verse 17 where it says, For thus saith the Lord. Remember, thus saith the Lord. You know what's going to come after that is going to be very, very important. David shall never want a man to sit upon the throne of the house of Israel. And of course, want there, this is the KJV, that means to lack. David shall never lack a man to sit upon the throne of the house of Israel. Second Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16 gets a little more explicit. This is Nathan the prophet speaking to David, and when thy days be fulfilled, so that's Nathan speaking to David, and when David's days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee. Which shall proceed out of thy bowels. So these are his literal descendants, right? And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, that's the temple, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee and thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee thy throne shall be established forever that is the passage from 2nd Samuel chapter 7 verses 12 through 16 it could not be more crystal clear about this promise of a continuation of David's rulership and the rulership of his descendants over Israel forever. In Second Chronicles chapter 13, verse 5, we have this passage. Ought ye not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingdom over Israel to David forever, even to him and to his sons by a covenant of salt. Next is Psalm 89, verses 20 through 37. This is a bit of a long passage. I'll read through it quickly. I have found David my servant, with my holy oil have I anointed him, with whom my hand shall be established, mine arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not exact upon him, nor the sons of wickedness afflict him, and I will beat down his foes before his face, and plague them that hate him. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted." I will set his hand also in the sea and his right hand in the rivers. He shall cry unto me, Thou art my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him my firstborn. Now this is interesting because this is messianic language and it ends up being applied to Jesus. God speaking about David. Also, I will make him my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth my mercy will I keep for him forevermore and my covenant shall stand fast with him. His seed also will I make to endure forever. So here we're getting to this theme about his seed sitting upon the throne forever. Verse 29, his seed also will I make to endure forever and his throne as the days of heaven. In other words, his throne will last forever, just like the days of heaven. If his children forsake my law and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. By the way, stripes means lashes, of course, in the KJV. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from them, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that is gone out of my lips. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David his seed shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me once again the idea his descendants will endure forever and his throne will endure forever as well finally verse 37 it shall be established forever as the moon and as a faithful witness In heaven. So a couple of things are coming out of these passages from the Old Testament. First off, that David's throne will be established forever. His descendants will be established forever. And even if they don't keep his commandments, God will chasten them. But he's not going to alter his covenant. Now, in other places where the same kind of promise is talked about in the Old Testament, a condition gets inserted. A condition of faithfulness. And whereas in the other passages, it says, look, if you're not faithful, if you break my commandments, I'm going to punish you a little bit, but I'm still not going to break this covenant that I have made with you. Here in 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 4 through 7, there is a condition of faithfulness inserted into this promise as a condition precedent to God fulfilling his promise to David. See if you can hear it. 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 4 through 7. And if thou wilt walk before me as David thy father walked. This is a message to Solomon, David's son. And if thou wilt walk before me as David thy father walked in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded thee and will keep my statutes and my judgments. So there it is. If you will keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of thy kingdom upon Israel forever, as I promised to David thy father, saying, There shall not fail thee a man upon the throne of Israel. And now it's going to hit this condition really hard in verse 6. But if ye shall at all turn from following me, ye or your children, and will not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then will I cut off Israel out of the land which I have given them and this house, which I have hallowed for my name, will I cast out of my sight, that of course being the temple, and Israel shall be a proverb and a byword among all people. So in other words, if Israel can't be a good example, they at least can be a horrible warning. So there you heard the example of a conditional being placed in the prophecy. Now this is something that we're also familiar with as Latter-day Saints, if we look at the Doctrine and Covenants and the Revelations produced by Joseph Smith. In some places, promises are made with no condition placed upon the fulfillment of those promises. At other places, conditions of faithfulness are set upon God's fulfillment of the promise he has made. And frequently, what happens in the Doctrine and Covenants, as well as in the Old Testament, is that God makes an unconditional promise, it ends up not being fulfilled, And then in later iterations of the same promise, the condition of faithfulness is placed upon it in order to explain why it is that the original unconditional promise was not fulfilled. It's not God's fault. He has all power. He is completely honest, has total integrity. Anything he promises, he will fulfill. But it's the people, his people, who have not been obedient, who have not kept their condition, have not kept their side of the bargain. And that is then used as the explanation for why it is that God did not keep his side of the bargain. A good example of that in LDS history has to do with Zion's camp in 1834, when the Lord revealed and commanded Joseph Smith to take an army, which ended up being, I think, a little over 200 people, and march from Ohio down to Missouri to take back by force the lands in Missouri from which... The Mormons had been driven and from which the Mormons had been exiled. Well, the revelations commanding Joseph to take that army and go and rescue the Missouri Mormons and take back their land by force tend to be somewhat unconditional in the way they're given initially. But later, when it doesn't work out and Joseph Smith does not take back the lands by force, in fact, they just sort of turn around and go home once they see the opposition looks a little bigger than maybe they had imagined, then the Lord starts blaming the failure of the revelation to be fulfilled on the unrighteousness of the people that they failed to live up to a celestial law and therefore they were driven from the land. So that's an example of an unconditional prophecy and commandment being given. It doesn't get fulfilled. And so the very natural, almost the expected reaction is for the blame to be put on the people for not being righteous enough in order to merit the fulfillment of that prophecy. This particular apologetic appears to have a long and distinguished pedigree and we find it even in the Old Testament. But the conclusion here is that whether it's considered conditional or unconditional, it was a widespread belief, perhaps even universal among the Jews, that David or a descendant of David would rule and reign upon the throne of an independent nation of Israel forever. But then all of that came crashing down. First, the Assyrians came from the north and took away the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BCE. This left the southern kingdom untouched, and the southern kingdom is where Jerusalem was and where the temple was. That was the southern kingdom of Judah. So there was still a Davidic king, a descendant of David, upon the throne in Judah, so the prophecy was still holding firm. But then the Babylonians came and took away the southern kingdom of Judah around 588 BCE, about 140 years after the northern kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians. And because of this, the line of David's descendants sitting upon the throne of Judah came to an end. The monarchical line of David was finished. This, as you might imagine, caused massive cognitive dissonance among the Jewish people. How could this have happened? How could the prophecy have failed? How could the promise of God been thwarted? Wasn't God in charge? After all, wasn't he all powerful? Didn't he know all things didn't god have the power to make his prophecies come to pass and as the jewish people struggled with this national case of cognitive dissonance over time they started realizing some things they started trying to make sense out of this baffling situation and the question that started arising was well we know god made this promise we know that promise wasn't fulfilled what do we do with this how could god's prophecy have failed and then people started asking the question or had it really failed Maybe it had just been interrupted. So this prophecy about the Davidic line reigning on the throne of Israel forever didn't come to pass at the time, but the tradition arose that it would come to pass in the future. And because of this, every generation looked for a Messiah who would be a son of David, who would come to overthrow whoever was dominating Israel at the time and establish that kingdom again. And this time, this time, it would last forever. Well, there's a lot of history of the Jewish people in the Old Testament that I'm not gonna go into, but I do wanna mention something that is not in the Old Testament, but is in the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that has to do with when the Jewish people were subjugated by the Greeks. Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus IV, was the emperor of that part of the fragmented Greek empire that ruled over Israel, And they were very, very hard on the Jewish people, forbidding circumcision of their male children, setting up pagan idols in their temple, sacrificing a pig on the altar, and all of this persecution and oppression led to a revolt by the Jewish people under the leadership of the Maccabees, a Jewish family, which actually succeeded in throwing off the Greek overlords and for a time, once again, establishing Israel as an independent nation. This was a golden age in the history, but ultimately it was done away with when the Romans entered the scene and resubjugated Israel under their rule. So this is the scene in Jesus's day. The Jews are not happy about being subject to their Roman overlords, and understandably so, even though the Romans were much more religiously tolerant to the Jews than Antiochus Epiphanes had been, the Jews still wanted to be an independent nation and they continued to scout about and look for a Messiah that they knew would come according to their tradition and according to their prophecies. And there were plenty of people who seemed to be willing to volunteer for the job. Jesus was not the only person who came along who was identified as a Messiah. There were many, many other people who were identified either by themselves or others or both as the Messiah who would come and overthrow the Roman government by military force. And by the way, the fact that only a couple of hundred years before this, the Maccabees had done the exact same thing with the Greek government, only solidified the Jews of Jesus' day in their conviction that they could do the same thing to the Romans. Jesus was only one of many people putting themselves forward as the Messiah and being believed by certain segments, to indeed be the Messiah. This in turn is of course why Rome was not enthusiastic about people claiming to be the Messiah and felt the need to dispatch them with all due haste. Anybody out there proclaiming themselves or believed to be a Messiah is an immediate threat to the Roman government and that's why. There's a line from the musical Jesus Christ Superstar about the Jews and messiahs and the line as I recall it is, you Jews breed messiahs by the sackful. Now that's a memorable way of putting the circumstance that existed in ancient Israel but it is accurate. It probably got so that you couldn't swing a dead cat in Jerusalem without hitting somebody claiming to be the messiah. So now that we understand the messianic expectation of the Jewish people in Jesus's day, we can understand that this is the Messiah. And this is the kind of Messiah that Jesus was believed to be by his followers when he was alive. And since he was believed to be this, it is likely that Jesus was presenting himself in this manner as well. I mean, it wasn't like the life of Brian where all these people just throw their messianic expectations on somebody who's not even trying to proclaim himself to be a messiah. That's one of the things that makes the movie so funny. But common sense tells us that if other people are going to be believing that Jesus was the messiah, it's probably because Jesus was making that claim himself as well. So Jesus was the messiah who would overthrow the Romans with the power of God, and become king, and sit on the throne forever, or at least his descendants would, if not himself personally. But then something happened that shocked and dismayed and confused Jesus' followers. The one thing happened that was never supposed to even be able to happen to the Messiah. He died. And not only did he die, he was crucified by the Romans that he was supposed to overthrow In this particular battle between the Romans and the Messiah, it was Romans 1, Messiah 0. Clearly now, Jesus could not be the Messiah. He did not fulfill the Jewish expectations of the Messiah. He did not overthrow Rome. He did not overthrow Rome. Instead, Rome overthrew him. And this is why many scholars have looked at Judas a little bit differently than he has come to be understood Generally, The general understanding of Judas is that he was just a bad egg who betrayed Jesus for some sort of personal reasons. There is a line of scholarship, however, that looks at Judas as really, really believing that Jesus was the Messiah. He was going to be this political leader who would overthrow the Romans by military force, and he was getting sick and tired of Jesus pussyfooting around and ministering to the marginalized instead of getting on with the business at hand. And so Judas, as the theory goes, Did not betray Jesus in order for him to die. He betrayed Jesus in order to force his hand. He got him turned over to the Romans so that Jesus would finally have to put up or shut up. And the putting up that Judas wanted him to do was finally reveal himself as the Messiah who would have to now overthrow the Romans. He would have to reveal himself as the true Messiah that Judas knew he was. And unfortunately, That did not happen. Jesus was crucified by the Romans and died on the cross, and this caused Judas so much remorse that he went out and killed himself as a result, not for intentionally betraying Jesus to his death, but accidentally betraying Jesus to his death. And it was after Jesus was crucified on that Good Friday 2,000 years ago that one of two things happened with his followers. First, they were all in agony because they were going through the faith crisis of all faith crises. Can you imagine being one of his followers, knowing in your heart that this Jesus is the Messiah, the one who will throw off the bonds of their Roman overlords and establish the kingdom of Israel as an independent nation forever. And he dies ignominiously on the cross with the Romans laughing and parting his garments and making a mockery of him while they were doing so. So all of Jesus's disciples would have been experienced this kind of spiritual agony. But among those disciples, they would take two different courses. And I say this because these are really the only two options they had at that point. Number one, there would be those who sadly realized that Jesus wasn't the Messiah that they had hoped and dreamed for, and they left and went back to fishing or whatever it was they did for a living, either becoming wholly disillusioned or perhaps looking for another Messiah. In other words, the first group is going to abandon the idea that Jesus was the Messiah when he was crucified, thereby proving conclusively that he could not be and was not the Messiah. But there was another group of Jesus' followers. These were the hardcore believers in Jesus. They were those who could not and would not let go of the idea that Jesus was the Messiah. These are the followers of Jesus that in John's gospel, the last gospel that we have in the Bible that was written, these are the followers that refused to turn away from Jesus, even when others of his followers did turn away from him because of the hardness of his teachings. Jesus asked Peter, will you also turn away? Peter says to Jesus, whither shall I go, thou only hast the words of life. So these are the hardcore disciples of Jesus. These are the ones who are not going to turn away from him. These are the ones who are going to continue to believe that he is the Messiah, even after he is killed. And like apologists of this day, they've reversed their line of logic, starting with the conclusion, like many apologists of this day do. You start with the conclusion that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God, and therefore, anything he did, including polygamy and all the things that went along with that, must be from God. If you don't start with a conclusion and just start looking at Joseph Smith's polygamy, you might come to a different conclusion than you would if you do it backwards. So these Jewish followers started with the conclusion that Jesus was the messiah they didn't say that jesus was the messiah the messiah can't be killed by the romans jesus was killed by the romans and therefore jesus could not be the messiah instead they started with their conclusion i.e they knew that jesus was the messiah they knew that he had died and therefore it was up to them to come up with a fresh and new understanding of why it was that the messiah should die And there were a couple of steps in this process. The first step was that Jesus was not through. He was still alive. He would come back and he would come back soon. And when he came back, he was going to do everything that he was expected to do the first time. Now, if you want to know what Jesus' followers thought he was going to do the first time he came, all you have to do is look at what the beliefs are that Jesus will do when he comes the second time. And there's no better picture of that in the New Testament than in the book of the Revelation. There Jesus comes riding a white horse. He has a sword. He has a crown. And he lays waste to all of his enemies. Indeed, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when he comes back, he will assume rulership, not just over Israel, but over the entire world. It is a grandiose vision of Jesus. It is what the Christian world has generally understood that Jesus will do when he returns, but the key here is to understand that this is exactly what Jesus' disciples believed that he was going to do 2000 years ago as the Messiah, but failed. Now notice that this is the same thing that was done with the prophecy of the Davidic dynasty. In the first place, it was interrupted. It failed to come to pass. It appeared to be unfulfilled. But then the tradition arose that this dynasty of David would be reestablished in the future and when it was reestablished, it would last forever. In the same way, Jesus was believed to be that Messiah who would reestablish the kingdom of David, but he was killed. And therefore, once again, that prophecy, that belief, that expectation was postponed until Jesus came back again then the prophecy would be fulfilled. Then the messianic expectation of Jesus would be realized. And now we get to the resurrection. There's an old story about the Smothers Brothers TV show back in the late 60s, early 70s. They were very popular. They would sing some folk songs. They would do some very funny comedy bits together. There was Dickie and Tommy Smothers. And Dickie was a straight guy Tommy was the funny one. And one evening, they're doing their opening comedy bit on the show. And Tommy, the funny one, says to his brother Dick, did you hear that they're canceling Easter this year? And Dick says, what, they're canceling Easter? And Tommy says, yeah, they're canceling Easter. And Dick says, why? And Tommy looks at him and says, they found the body. That joke went over so badly 50 years ago that the story is that it led directly to the cancellation of the Smothers Brothers show. But back to the resurrection, Jesus has to come again in order to do everything he was supposed to do the first time. And for Jesus to do that and come once again, it may have been that his followers felt he needed to be resurrected so that he could come again and do all those things as a military leader to vanquish his enemies by the sword. And it may have been that they felt that for somebody to do all of those military things, they had to have a body to hold the sword. A spirit can't hold a sword very well. It keeps falling to the ground, which is an embarrassing thing to have happen right in the middle of the Battle of Armageddon. And this idea of Jesus coming again as the Messianic figure reminds me of how Henry V is described in the prologue to that play. Then should the warlike Harry, like himself, assume the port of Mars... And at his heels, and this is the part I'm driving toward, and at his heels, leashed in like hounds, should famine, sword, and fire crouch for employment. So you've got Henry V, referred to affectionately as Harry here, assume the port of Mars, Mars of course being the god of war, and at his heels, leashed in like hounds, should famine, sword, and fire crouch for employment. It is by famine, sword, and fire that Henry V will conquer France, And it is by the same means that Jesus is going to conquer the entire world when he comes again. So that's step one. Jesus Christ is not done. He's still alive. He's resurrected. He will come back. And when he comes back again, which will be soon, he will fulfill everything that he was expected to do by his followers as the Messiah the first time around, but did not. Step number two. But what do his followers make of the fact that Jesus died on the cross? Why did that have to happen? There must be a reason. What purpose did it serve? These are the ideas and the questions that would have been plaguing Jesus' true believers after he died. Again, they know that Jesus is the Messiah. They know that he was supposed to overthrow Rome. They know that he wasn't supposed to be crucified on the cross by the Romans. And so why was he crucified? And in order to come up with the explanation, As to why it was that Jesus was crucified, it's important to understand that the people trying to put the pieces together were his first followers, Jewish. Jesus was a Jewish carpenter. His first followers were Jewish. And so the most natural thing in the world would be for them to look at a person who suffered a bloody death, i.e., Jesus, and try to make sense of it from their own religious perspective. What other perspective? would they have than their own. Now you don't have to be an expert in the Old Testament to know that an integral part of the Jewish religion for hundreds of years had been the sacrifice of animals in their temple, at least when they had a temple and were able to. But that was the central focus of their ritualistic and religious observances was the temple and one of the main purposes of the temple was to be a place where animals of all sorts were brought and then sacrificed by the priests. Now, many religions had the component of animal sacrifice, but the Jewish religion was somewhat unique in why it was that they sacrificed animals. Other religions, including the Greeks, including the Romans, would sacrifice animals as a show of gratitude to their God as a show of thanks for blessings. They would also sacrifice in order to try and propitiate the gods, to get the gods to do what it was they wanted them to do, whether it was to make it rain, make a drought to end, give them victory in battle, those kinds of things. And I think the Jewish people did that as well. But in addition to that, the Jewish religion sacrificed animals in the temple for the remission of their sins. So Jesus, the Messiah, and this is critical to understanding where I'm going from here and where Jesus' disciples, who were Jews, went with their beliefs about Jesus from there. Jesus was the Messiah. He was not supposed to die. He did die. He died on a cross. His blood was spilt. Therefore, fitting that fact, which they knew only too well, into their religious tradition, Jesus must have been a sacrifice to of some sort. He wouldn't have been sacrificed unless he wanted to be sacrificed. Because remember, they thought he could take himself down from the cross anytime he wanted to, and that God would send legions of angels to his support. And the legions of angels weren't just to get him off the cross. They were to lay waste to all of his enemies, the Romans. So God wanted Jesus to die on the cross as well. If God wanted Jesus to die on the cross, there must have been an important reason for it. And the reason they came up with was that Jesus must have been a sacrifice too of some sort. But what purpose would Jesus' sacrifice have served? Well, what was the purpose of sacrificing animals in the temple for the Jewish people? It was for the forgiveness of sins. At least a large component was, as I mentioned, the forgiveness of sins. In this way, Jesus came to be seen as an offering of a similar type of sacrifice. He was crucified for the forgiveness of sins. He was sacrificed For the same reason that Jews had practiced animal sacrifice for centuries, for the forgiveness of sins. But this was the Messiah. This was no animal. This was not an ox. This was not a sheep. This was not a pair of doves. This was the Messiah. And therefore, his sacrifice had to be greater than simply an animal sacrifice or any number of animal sacrifices or centuries. animal sacrifices the messiah's sacrifice jesus's sacrifice had to be the greatest of all and this manifested itself in a number of different ways number one jesus's sacrifice came to be seen as a sacrifice through which sins were remitted number two the remission of sins like the animal sacrifices was obtained through the shedding of his blood number three Some came to see his sacrifice as being so great that it was for the sins, not just of the individual, but for the sins of the entire world. Number four, some came to see his sacrifice as being so great that it put an end to the need for any more animal sacrifices in the temple. Number five, Jesus came to be associated with the Passover lamb, the Paschal lambs, being sacrificed at the temple. In this way, Jesus became the lamb of God. He was the lamb that God himself would sacrifice for the sins of mankind. And finally, number six, even as the lambs that were sacrificed in the temple were required by the law to be without blemish. So Jesus came to be understood as a man without blemish. Or in other words, he came to be understood as a person who committed no sin. He was perfect. He never did anything wrong. Otherwise, his sacrifice or the sacrifice of him would not be acceptable to God and would not work to forgive sins. In the same way as if you're an ancient Jewish person and you've got two lambs and one of them is perfect without blemish and the other one has all these blemishes and all these problems. And if you go and you sacrifice and give to the Lord, the one that has all the blemishes and all the problems, it's not going to work to forgive any sins because you withheld from sacrifice The lamb, the perfect lamb, the lamb without blemish. Now we hear in the church so often that Jesus was sinless, that he committed no sin, that he was without any kind of fault or error or even annoying habits, apparently, that it may seem a surprise to talk about a Jesus who was not really sinless, but who became sinless in retrospect to make him fulfill the requirements of an acceptable sacrifice, For the forgiveness of sins. But if you look at the New Testament, this appears to be something that was developed over time. In the Gospel of Mark, the earliest Gospel, Jesus is presented as much more human in nature. And when Jesus in Mark talks about the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven to judge mankind, it sounds like he's talking about somebody other than himself. It sounds like he's talking about a third person who will come in the clouds of glory. But even by the time you get to Matthew, which was written some decades after Mark, in Matthew we have a story of someone coming to Jesus to pose him a question and he calls Jesus good master. And Jesus says, wait a second, why are you calling me good? There's only one who's good and that's God. Now go on with your question. So clearly Jesus is at this time in the development of Christianity At least according to the author of the Gospel of Matthew, claiming that he is not good, only God is good, which seems to be pretty similar to saying he's not perfect, only God is perfect. And yet by the time we get to the epistle to the Hebrews, the entire theology is laid out that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb of God and that he was without sin and he was perfect in every way. He never did anything wrong. And if you want to check it out, that reference to Jesus calling himself not good, but his father in heaven good can be found in Matthew chapter 19, verse 17. So all of these ideas had to be worked out over time and then rewritten back into the story of Jesus. This is the reason, I think, why it is that often the apostles, Jesus's closest followers, even Peter, are depicted in the gospels as idiots who can't understand what Jesus is saying when he talks about the fact that he's going to be sacrificed, that he's going to be crucified. Now, of course, from this point of view, Jesus never said any of those things because he didn't know he was going to be crucified. He thought he was the Messiah and would do all the things that the Jewish Messiah was supposed to do, which did not include getting crucified by the Romans. But those sayings were put back into the story. Why? Well, it was important for Jesus to know that he would die. This is all reverse engineering, you understand. For the story, it's important for Jesus to know that he would die. It can't be a surprise to him. I mean, as Jesus develops over time, or I should say the theology of Jesus develops over time to make him more and more godlike, he is attributed to have more and more knowledge, not only of things in the past, but also things in the future. So, of course, he would have to know that he was going to be crucified. And so this newly discovered understanding of why it was that he died as a sacrifice for sins had to be interpolated back into the text as something Jesus understood, but his apostles could not. So over and over again, you have Jesus making the most direct kind of allusions and statements and prophecies about his coming crucifixion. And the narrative says over and over again that the apostles did not understand what he was talking about. I mean, a little kid reading the Gospels who's a Christian and from a Christian background can understand what Jesus is talking about, but somehow his closest followers could not. But no, Jesus' apostles could understand perfectly well what Jesus was saying. The problem is, is that Jesus wasn't saying any of those things to them about the idea that he would be crucified in Jerusalem. This is similar, by the way, in LDS history to to the idea of Joseph Smith when he was gunned down with his brother Hiram in Carthage, Illinois, on June 27th, 1844. This was not expected by Joseph Smith. He'd been in trouble with the law before, he'd gotten out. There were lots of things that he had left to accomplish, and yet he died. So what do we make of that? Well, Joseph Smith was a prophet of God, right? Therefore, certain statements get interpolated rewritten back into the history books and put into Joseph Smith's mouth before he dies to give us the idea that this wasn't a surprise to Joseph, that he knew it was coming all along. And it is almost certainly from this identical kind of religious impetus that in section 135 of the Doctrine and Covenants, verse 4, John Taylor recalls the following. When Joseph went to Carthage to deliver himself up to the pretended requirements of the law, Two or three days previous to his assassination, he said, I am going like a lamb to the slaughter, but I am calm as a summer's morning. I have a conscience void of offense towards God and towards all men. I shall die innocent. Yes, these words are being put into Joseph Smith's mouth retroactively after he died to show that he knew he would die. I shall die innocent and it shall yet be said of me he was murdered in cold blood. So we see the same kind of religious impulse at work in Mormonism related to Joseph Smith's death as we can see in the New Testament in Christianity related to the death of Jesus Christ. He has to know what's coming. He's Jesus for crying out loud. He's the Messiah. Later on, he will become God almighty so obviously this can't come as a surprise or a shock to jesus regardless of how the apostles are portrayed and therefore we have similar interpolations retroactively put into the mouth of jesus about his oncoming death as were put in the mouth of joseph smith about his oncoming death And I think at this point, it would be good to revisit the ending of the Gospel of Mark. Once again, Mark presents the most human version of Jesus of all four Gospels. And the ending of Mark is fascinating because you've heard about the long ending of Mark that was apparently added at some point perhaps even hundreds of years after the original gospel of mark was written and the reason the long ending was added was because the original ending of mark was so short abbreviated and unexpectedly finished there is no post-resurrection appearance of jesus in mark as there is in the other gospels in other words there are no witnesses conclusively testifying that jesus really was resurrected from the dead and they know it because they saw him and they felt the prints of the nails in his hands and in his feet. So what I want to do is I just want to go to the end of Mark and read what was originally there in chapter 16 and I will stop it where the earliest version of Mark stopped. Here's what it says and I'm reading from the NRSV the New Revised Standard Version. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? Because obviously it's very large and apparently they don't feel they're up to the task. When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. Now, notice in this earliest gospel of Mark, this is not even an angel who appears. This person will be described as an angel or even two angels in subsequent gospels. But in this earliest gospel, it's not an angel or at least not explicitly an angel. It's a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he, this young man, said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Period. End of sentence. End of paragraph. End of the gospel of Mark. So you can see there's absolutely no post-resurrection experience as recorded in the first version of Mark. And that is why it was thought necessary later on to incorporate elements from other gospels that were written later that do have post-resurrection appearances of Jesus to create a new and longer ending for the gospel of Mark. The next step and the final step in this process of Jesus becoming the Savior is first, as we've already mentioned, that the scriptures about the Messiah and all the things that he would accomplish in the Old Testament had to be deferred and delayed till Jesus came again. Once again, see the book of Revelation for what it was the Messiah was supposed to do and what Jesus is going to do when he comes again. He's really going to do that Messiah job right the next time. But on top of that, the early Christians had to begin searching the books of the Old Testament. Remember, the early Christians were Jews. They began searching the books of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, in order to come up with passages that would support their new understanding of why it was Jesus died and how it was that Jesus died. Surely if the prophets of the Hebrew Bible predicted, sometimes even in detail, the life, ministry, and death of Jesus, that would show that this is the way things were supposed to happen, that God was still in control, that Jesus was still the Messiah. And even though the early Christians had to twist verses from the Hebrew Bible mercilessly, they nevertheless were able to find themselves more than up to the task of showing how God had predicted that this is exactly what would happen together with predicting pretty much every other aspect of Jesus's life. Now, the problem is, is that modern scholars of the Hebrew Bible look at these passages and they recognize that no, they don't have anything to do with Jesus. In fact, they are taken so badly out of context, in some cases, as to be laughable. But the early Christians were not laughing at all they were grasping at straws. They were looking for anything and everything they could in order to continue to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And once again, this is the same kind of thing that happens in other churches as well as the LDS church. Because once the LDS church was restored, it became important to find elements and aspects of the restoration that were foretold in the Old Testament. You see, it's the same kind of religious impulse at work if it's prophesied in the Old Testament or in the case of the Restoration, it could be the New Testament as well. But if it's prophesied by ancient prophets, then that shows that what you're engaged in right now is true and it's what God planned to have happen and it's God working out his will as he inspired his prophets of old to prophesy that it would come to pass. One of the most famous examples of this in Mormonism is taking Isaiah 29 and making it into a prophecy of the Book of Mormon and the marvelous work and a wonder, which is code for the restoration and which ends up being actually the name of one of the most famous books ever written in the LDS Church, A Marvelous Work and a Wonder by LeGrand Richards. And also in Isaiah 29, the Book of Mormon itself becomes the sealed book that cannot be read. By the way, there are two ways of playing this game. The first way is to twist scriptures as they are written to fit what actually happened in the restoration. Or if that doesn't work, you can twist the history of what happened in the restoration to make it more accurately fit the scriptures. And both of those were at play in the LDS church. And I imagine that both of those were also at play by the writers of the New Testament. As just one brief example, consider the fact that both Matthew and Luke have Jesus born at Bethlehem when it is almost certain that he was not born. In Bethlehem. But the reason they had him born in Bethlehem was in order to fulfill a prophecy from Micah that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. If the mountain not come to Muhammad, Muhammad go to the mountain. Another chapter from the Old Testament frequently used by the LDS to talk about a prophecy of the Book of Mormon is Ezekiel chapter 37 and his famous prophecy about the stick of Judah and the stick of Of Joseph. Now, these are not records. These are not written books or scrolls at all. These are actually just what the text says. They're sticks. And on one stick is written for the house of Judah and his descendants, etc. And on another stick is written for the house of Joseph. And then they're held together in the prophet's hands to show that both of them are coming together. This was a prophecy, which in context has nothing to do with any kind of written records, as I mentioned. It doesn't have to do with the Bible. It doesn't have to do with the Book of Mormon. What it has to do with is a prophecy. That ultimately, the northern tribe of Israel, i.e. Joseph, as it's sometimes called, and the southern tribe of Judah would one day come together and be united, reunited, and it feels so good. But the Latter-day Saints, who were extremely anxious to find any kind of connection between the Old Testament and the Restoration, seized upon this passage, wrenched it out of context, just as much as the early Christians did to support their belief that Jesus was the Savior, the Mormons took this passage about two sticks and made them into two records and identified the two records as the Bible and as the Book of Mormon and that in the last days they would come together in the Lord's hand. And I remember back in 1979, I think it was when the church published its own first edition of the Bible, complete with JST footnotes. And then in 1981, I think it was a couple of years later when they released the new triple combination, that in General Conference, a great deal was made about it. And it was a huge project, and I think a a great deal should have been made about it. But I remember Boyd K. Packer, I believe it was, holding the new Bible and the new triple combination in his hands and talking about the cross-references and the footnotes and saying that this finally really fulfilled the prophecy of Ezekiel, that the stick of Judah and the stick of Joseph were one in his hands. By the way, I went back and checked. It was not General Conference in 1981 that this talk was given. It was given by Elder Boyd K. Packer. I was right on that. It was in October of 1982. The title of his talk is Scriptures, and it sounds like I remembered it pretty well. Here's a brief excerpt. The stick or record of Judah, the Old Testament, and the New Testament, and the stick or record of Ephraim, the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ, are now woven together in such a way that as you pour over one, you are drawn to the other. As you learn from one, you are enlightened by another. They are indeed one in our hands, Ezekiel's prophecy now stands fulfilled. So once again, what we see happening in Mormonism is not the first time this has ever happened. It happens on a regular basis with many, many different religions and incipient Christianity was no different. So this in sum is my hypothesis on how it is that Jesus became the savior. Jesus did not die In order to become the Savior, Jesus became the Savior because he died. Well, I hope you've enjoyed tonight's podcast. I want to express my appreciation to all of my listeners for your support and your kindness and for reaching out to me in this rather difficult time for yours truly. I can certainly relate to the despair and the darkness that Jesus' apostles were going through 2,000 years ago at this time. When dreams are burned and hopes are dashed. But it's important for me to remember that in the words of Hemingway, the sun also rises. And even after Good Friday and the Saturday of despair experienced by the apostles of old, Easter Sunday dawns and there is a new birth and a new life on the other side of the despair. Always something good for every one of us to keep in mind. And this lesson is important even if Jesus never actually resurrected from the dead. As G.K. Chesterton put it, fairy tales are not true because they teach us that dragons exist. Fairy tales are true because they teach us that dragons can be defeated. So, as I say, I feel that I can identify in some measure with the crisis of faith, with the cognitive dissonance, with the dark night of the soul that was experienced by Jesus' followers after he was crucified. And you know, so can every member of the LDS Church who has gone or is going through a faith crisis. From going to believing in Jesus as the Messiah, who would conquer the Romans, and then having him die, showing conclusively that their belief was mistaken, that is a heaping dose of cognitive dissonance. And I think that now being on this side of Mormonism, I can perhaps better relate to what they were going through at the time. And perhaps all of us can, to some degree, or another. Well, that's about all for tonight. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. Everybody look around, because there's a reason to rejoin, you see.